Good evening and welcome to another edition of RPG Coast to Coast. I'm your host, Brian from Lost Relic Industries, and our guests will introduce themselves in order of initiative. Hi everyone, I'm Alice Peng, aka Lala Twiddle, and I represent Babies with Knives. I am also one of the newer members of Frog Guide Games. I'm the tadpole that is dealing with their media division. I am also a frequent contributor on um, Banff Podcast by Mike Lafferty, who is for Fainting Goat Games. I'm Glenn Welch, best known as Mr. Welch, uh, RPG comedian, and uh, I'm the guy dragging Mastara back into 5th edition, and uh, I've also written quite a few humorous things throughout my life, uh, and I've been writing all for a few decades now. I'm uh, Phil Kearney, F-I-L-K-E-A-R-N-E-Y, et cetera. I'm an artist, past years. I recently moved into the 5e game design space, uh, the most cool of my so far is a fun tap burn fire mana point variant rule. Hi there, I'm Brandon. I am also part of the Babies with Knives podcast as one of the two minds behind it, uh, crazed and demented as we are. I am also a frequent uh, guest on the BAMP podcast by Mike Lafferty, like Lala was mentioning, and I also uh, work with Frog God Games in their media division. So uh, everything she said is also true for me. She just makes it sound better. Okay. Um, well, if uh, Lala, if you want to choose a topic for us, I've posted them in the channel. Sure. I am interested in talking about magic systems in games and variant magic systems that are brought into game systems at times. So... Uh, I volunteer Phil to kick us off since earlier today, Brandon and I had the pleasure of hanging out with him on Babies with Knives and doing some recordings for his upcoming product, which is a variant based off of uh, Magic the Gathering for 5th edition. Uh, yeah, um, I did that. So like, do I just like talk about as in general? I'm new here. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I put you on the spot a little bit, didn't I? But, uh, so, yeah, I mean, just, yeah, just give <laughs> me, me when I run out of time. Um, I, I've, I've been a, like, a D&D riffs run or TMNT. And uh, so uh, I've gone through all the systems. I've seen a lot of stuff go on. I got into magic in college. Um, oh, when uh, basically my spiel is that when wizards started publishing gathering settings as fifth edition books um they made it available on the dms so uh, that allows us to be with both of those ips like most significant see trees so, so exciting you're coming in and out unfortunately a little bit phil but I think I got the gist of what you said. I think it's really interesting that there are people who really love magic systems and then there are people who really hate them. I know a few designers who are like, I stopped wanting to, I stopped wanting to write my book whenever it gets to the magic system. I'll leave those people's names out. But for me, I definitely 
I like magic systems and it engages me with a system. I definitely prefer Shadowrun over Cyberpunk because it has a magic system. And I definitely think that uh, Vantian magic systems, uh, that I, I like seeing alternatives to Vantian magic systems, like the one that you showed us earlier today, Phil, because uh, Vantian was created at a time that game systems were, uh, were not as, uh, did not have as broad of a width as it does today. You got a huge range, but you want to match the magic system to the game because then I guess the other, I guess the exact opposite of Vancean would be the uh, uh, Mage of the Ascension system where it's total freeform. But you have to balance it out because, again, you run quickly run into the uh, quadratic wizards and linear fighters. I've always well, viewed Vancean's as loading the gun beforehand. On the, the quadratic wizards, uh, linear fighters, um, I, I've played, you know, third ed, three, five pathfinder and gotten up to, you know, around 16th, uh, 17th level in them. And the fighters that we had in general still were really good contributors. And part of that was always the fear that, you know, they're going to run out of resources. The mages are going to run out of resources if they just unload everything. And so a, a big problem with the, 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 com the big complaint that people have is seems to go right along with that 15 minute adventuring day, which has always been something very strange to me. Um, by all means, uh, the last time that, uh, that we played uh, a certain group of characters back in uh Three five, I'm thinking, but it might have been third edition. Uh, Alice's cleric was out fighting the fighter, uh, but uh, she was specifically building to be the best fighter that she could. Um, I was, I was very much a combat cleric, and so I used a big two-handed greatsword, and with my buff spells, I was doing 250 damage around. But, uh, but I was doing throwing all of my resources into doing that by all means. But what about other people? Do people like magic systems in games or do people find that because of one, one belief or another that they don't touch it? Uh, it depends entirely on the system. I, you know, you can't play D&D &D without it, but if you put it in Twilight 2000, people are going to stare at you funny. Right. <laughs> right. Well, they, they put it in Cyberpunk and made Shadowrun and that worked out. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, but yeah, I, I think like, for example, it's, yeah, it, it does depend a lot on the system's mechanics and what the goal, uh, the play style of the system is. Um, what, one of the things that we did was we wanted basically, uh, the game to be very easy to play and the determiners to be easy to set up. So there wasn't a lot of page flip, uh, while you're playing. Uh, the downside to that is, is that you lose some of the complexity um, that that other games might offer, um, but we were always looking at ways to try to make people um, always feel like their character or, or could somehow contribute. And so that idea uh, carried over with us for Wizards because uh, we were looking at um, well, if the balancing aspect of the Wizard is the fact that they run out of spells, that's kind of cruddy, right? I mean, I don't. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but you know that's that's a negative because at, at a certain point that basically says the wizard 
only chooses to get involved in things so often. Um, and so we took it to another level and said, okay, so one of the important aspects of a wizard is, you know, this concept of having uh, scrolls or spells or written knowledge um, and taking that trope a step further and saying, well, um, if you spend time, you can cast anything from your written scroll book um, regardless, uh, and it doesn't count towards your spells. And this made them very utilitarian during downtime because you what we would see is that they would they weren't concerned about wasting those you know non uh blast it and blow everything to pieces spells up um and then they were still contributing to the party yeah i mean fifth when you're dealing with finite magic spells it's when you're designing the game it's about balance is one spell too many or is one is sorry is one spell too few is four spells too few is 50 spells too many it's finding that magic spot in the middle and you've also got to balance the spells or else you end up with uh, Iron Kingdoms where they have no utility spells and everything's designed to be used in combat. Hey, everybody. Sorry for being late. Hey, Rob. Hi, Rob. So this is... Uh, yeah, go ahead and introduce yourself if you want, Rob. <laughs> I'm uh, Rob of Bat in the Attic Game. And so and... What, what topic is going first tonight? Uh, We're talking about magic systems. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Magic systems is what we're currently discussing. As oh. to the the fact that it can be a bad thing for uh, there to be a run out of spells, I, I don't want to attribute the word bad like that because that's actually something that attracts me to being a wizard at times is resource management and needing to, you know, uh, shepherd these limited resources that can have a massive effect on the game uh, while you're going through and playing. And that's, I, I know other people who enjoy that. And I do know other people who really don't enjoy that, but to just remove that is uh, definitely not something I want to see. I Go ahead. Oh, then you've got like fifth edition that tries to balance it between wizards and sorcerers, where the wizards have finite spells, but the sorcerers use spell points, which is still gives you finite spells, but it's a it's a different uh, mechanic. But a plus b equals b plus a. Well, I, I'm not sure you guys will like my opinion in that. It's see, magic is really it's just all made up. Okay, so. The starting point is just you got to kind of describe it. What's magic like in your setting in English? And then the mechanics will follow that. And uh, one of the things what I had to do with uh, the Majestic, Majestic Waterlands supplement, I was, for 20 years, I played the Majestic Waterlands under GURP. So basically GURP's magic was... Uh, kind of like the default presentation of magic. And GURPS magic is very sprawling. Each spell is a skill. Um, it's a mana-based system where a spell takes so much mana, which comes off of your fatigue, and which usually is the same as a D&D style attribute. The average is 10, which can range between... Uh, you can go character... It was not uncommon for character to have 13 or 15 fatigue. So... You know, I wanted to share some of the material, and you know, GURPS doesn't have a third-party pro, didn't have a third-party program back then. So, you know, I decided to 
you know, play test D and D, but since I was targeting D and D, I had to still, you know, so I had to switch everything over to uh, a Vantian system. And, uh, you know, I really thought about it. And so the thing about GURPS is that when you cast spells, don't get a whole lot of them in a combat because you run out of fatigue quickly. Now you regain fatigue quickly in that it takes one minute, 10 minutes of rest to get back a point of uh, fatigue. So, but in combat, you still uh, run out. So the Vantian system, which is especially uh, on Swords and Wizardry, which was my uh, base point, that was fine, um, especially at lower levels. And, uh, but in GURPS, you could do that rest and then, you know, cast your utility spells and stuff like that, like some of you guys were mentioning earlier. So I decided to take a page from D&D 4th edition and allow casters to cast any spell in their spell book as a 10-minute ritual. But to maintain some of the flavor of the restore management that D&D was known for, I decided, okay, it's going to cost you 10 silver in uh, spell component to cast a first level spell. And then it's 40 silver, you know, basically the spell level square times uh, 10. So 40 silver to cast a second level spell. And they have to be spell components. So I didn't make a list of spell components. I just say, okay, you have this pool of money. Spell components, they had a value, but you have to go to a magic shop to buy it so that if you run out of the spell component, you just can't, you have to find a magic shop and buy it. So that was what I did to reflect how I view how magic developed in my setting. You know, I, if I stuck with D&D, then I probably would have stuck to straight, strict fancy. Yeah, gotcha, yeah. Um, in D&D, you know, I mean, I, I like the Vancean system is oh, something I grew up in, but I'm always looking at some of the other options that are out there. Uh, it's one reason that, you know, Phil, uh, Phil's game uh, or, or hack for magic where he's taking the uh, the five elements of magic the gathering card game and kind of molding the magic system that's in fifth edition to that along with putting it on a, a spell point chassis uh was very interesting to me other ones that i've really liked is elements of magic which was uh, third ed three five and is now being used in the what's old is new system uh spheres of magic by adam myers for drop dead studios and uh we were talking about it very briefly right before this psionics that have come out in second edition was probably my favorite one but i really did enjoy the third edition version and uh dream press is doing that one for has done that one for pathfinder basically an updated version of uh watsi's third ed psionics now i just want to bring up and I've, i'm not saying this is you know that there's any wrong way to play this but I noticed that for a lot of people that complain that they don't have enough spells or stuff like this, um, the way that their group has played in the past is if your wizard's not casting a spell, you're completely useless. You hide in the back, you don't do anything, you don't lift a finger, you cry, you complain, you you just or you just shut up and let everybody else do the job until you can cast a spell. Now, in groups that I've dealt with, especially the way that Brandon and I play, and like I said, there's no wrong way in playing it, but... 
uh, I like I play a lot of resource limited characters. I play a lot of casters and such like that. But what it comes down to is finding resourceful ways to contribute, whether that's going in and um, aiding to attack or shooting uh, shooting a normal you know crossbow or bow. Or in one case recently, I was um, very limited on the number of spells I had, but we were dealing with light sensitive creatures. So our cleric had cast a light spell. So I had a mirror. And what I did was I started basically reflecting light, redirecting light using my mirrors into the eyes of the creatures to give them negatives or to scare them away. Um, because I didn't want to blow the one spell that I had in the, in the game. There Fantastic. are ways to contribute in other ways, set up, you know, be, be ingenuitive. And I think that when you push yourself, you can, um, you end up surprising yourself and you end up learning things that you didn't learn before. Like when I was playing a superhero character called Scarab, uh, she had, she summoned an army of scarabs all the time. And I started researching scarabs, scarab beetles. <laughs> and wow, there are more colorations of scarab beetles in the world than there are butterflies. And there are ones that are very much metallic and mirror-like. And so I was using all those properties and, um, you know, manipulating the situation. So like when we needed a reflective situation, I would be summoning an army, uh, sorry, an army of the reflective bugs or something like that. And so being resource limited isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's how you use your resources to me that's my personal opinion or just well, grab the bluff spell and pretend that you're casting a spell and see if they <laughs> buy it well you know that's one of the advantages of on one end of the spectrum that's one of the advantage of o and d of od and d and actually fifth edition as well because even though uh, you know fighters have uh armor and stuff in both editions every character has the same to hit chance with their weapon so even if you run out of spells as a wizard in 5th edition or OD&D, you can still contribute pretty much. I mean, you can't take the hits, obviously, but even there in OD&D, not much different than the hit points of the different character. So, you know, that's one, you know, that's one, that's one interesting facet that, that OD&D uh, has and about that. And for me, I don't mind being different. I don't mind that the fighter is much better at hitting something than I am uh, if I am playing a resource limited because when um, stuff hits the fan and they need one big hit, they're not going to, you know, then I can come out and, you know, really pop. And then I just go back and assist the party in certain situations or find ingenuitive ways to solve the problem. So, you know, I, I think that for me, I don't mind different people having different strengths and weaknesses because in real life, not everyone's the same and not everyone can do the exact same things to the exact same capabilities, which to me, uh, it, it turns me off from some of the games that everyone has to do the same, ex behave this exact same level of stuff. Um, but uh, that's always Cypher. a turn off for me when everyone's the same but different um, because it's slightly different skin like a video game, but everyone's running on the exact same mechanic. What were so, you going to say, Phil? Yeah, that's, that's like the Cypher system, right? Where you've got the three stats and you've got abilities that cost X amount of stat points, depending if it's, a, if it's like a muscle, if it's a muscle ability, it'll do X damage for a strength and if it's a, a psychic attack it's x damage for b intelligence it's a, it, it, like fourth edition had that same problem where it was all just a bunch of variables that that 
if you peeled off the names, you couldn't really you couldn't really guess which class that ability belonged to, right? Yeah, I, yeah. You, it was a very that? big issue in for you. I think I think that's what I think that's what really turns people off about systems is that they don't feel like like if I'm going to be a wizard, I want to know that I'm going to be acting differently from everyone else. Yes, you know, like yes. that's like, I think that's really what like say I always default back to the five E or any kind of D and D is like defining a druid from a cleric. It's just it's just a nature cleric with some extra abilities versus like a shaman or a street mage in Shadowrun has they've got they've got different feelings to them. Would you agree? Yes, I love it. Yeah, I love it when they feel different. I play a lot of, uh, I like to be Gish characters a lot. I like to have some spell power to feel different and be able to do different things in interesting ways. But I also like to be able to hit things. So I play a lot of Gish character builds by all means. Well, I am going to shadow. Go ahead. Okay. Um, There is a little bit of luck in that, in that you want to be elegant about it. You know, if you have elegant mechanics, which means you need less of them, and if it's less, it's your system will be easier to learn. Yeah. So when I wrote the Majestic Waterlands, uh, and I decided to use the ritual system of 4E, I realized that I could turn that into a really elegant system that to, to, to make the to have the same variety of magic. Uh, I enjoyed in when I was using GURPS or early prior to that Fantasy Hero, which was you know, basically build your own magic system with that game. And uh, so I took that, the ritual system, and then I took the sorcerer class as well from uh, third edition and applied it to this uh, swords and wizardry. So, like I said, I added a ritual system, 10 minute ritual, you can cast a spell with the magic users, but I just didn't. I said, whatever the half your highest level spell that you can cast, rounded down, that's the uh, the highest level ritual spells. So if you can cast second level spells, you can cast first level rituals. But you can't cast second level rituals until you reach fourth level rituals. And then I thought, okay, so if, if the present day we got magic user, what came before the magic user? And I figured, okay, it was only a ritual caster. They couldn't memorize spells and cast them. They only knew how to cast a 10-minute ritual. And then I thought, okay, so what? how did they cast battle, uh, spells and battles? Well, they made scrolls. And that led to, well, you know, what about the uh, runes and, and Vikings? You know, they're traditionally runes and Vikings. And they just, you know, historically, the Viking era came just after the Viking emerged from their uh, Iron Age. Um, and uh, started raiding uh, Europe. So I decided that, okay, so the Vikings, they have runes which act like scrolls, and the only wrinkle with that was scroll, you have one piece of parchment with, with your your spell on it, while with runes, you can actually carve it. And, you know, and I, I came up with a rule, like every three inches you can put a rune. So a guy can, a rune catcher can carry around a rune stick, and you have four runes on it, so he had essentially a stick that acts like four scrolls. Nice. And it and as far as the sorcerer goes, I got rid of the idea of bloodline and decided to make it an elven thing, because elves live so long they can internalize their magic. And they also taught it to humans who are allied with them, so that 
so I played with that, and I came out with what I call the Trahean form of magic, which really is just a reskinned version of uh, the sorcerer built for swords and wizardry. So with those three changes, two changes, I was able to create, recreate about you know three quarters of the variety I had with GURPS, which you know has a huge list of stuff to play with. Yeah, GURPS definitely has a lot. Uh, just going back to what Phil was talking about on the differentiation, that is, uh, you and I were having this conversation earlier today on how back in second edition that you had uh, priests with their spheres. And so therefore, it was like, I don't think you cast a third level spell unless it was in one of the aspects that your god specifically cared about. And I yes. really like that. Some people complain about that, and they say that it limits the type of priests that you're going to play. Well, it's probably going out and you know killing monsters for uh, treasure and helping people in that fashion. That probably is also limiting the priests that are going to be interested in it. And it's the same thing in Shadowrun that over the years, as they have altered and changed their magic system, it used to be that you had the the guys who could conjure uh, the elementals and get them to do things for them, or you had the people who were casting spells. And they've, you know, with I think probably every edition, they've changed exactly how those are working together or not. And if yeah. you have a game that is designed for everybody supposed to be playing a wizard, you can take the magic systems in all sorts of new directions like Ars Magica does, where it's... You know, you, you you can't fight worth crap, but that's why a major part of your uh, uh, your character build is uh, your henchmen. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I've done that for the majest my Majestic Wilderlands campaign. It it doesn't happen often, but every once in a while, we'll play. We'll say, "Hey, does everybody want to be a member of the Criminal Underworld?" So we make up characters that fit in the Criminal Underworld of City State and flesh that out. And then, you know, the campaign that started that, that, that turned out to be really fun, was we ran a campaign where everybody was a magic user. Nobody with anything else. And uh, so from that, develop a lot of the life of the magic user in the city-state. And one of the, the key things that you could do some interesting things with your classes and stuff, but you kind of need to back up back them up with a bit of the life of the setting because that's what gives players uh, things to do and opportunities to adventure. Because, you know, you, you know, the first D&D campaign ever was Greyhawk and that was focused on exploration of the dungeon. So that D&D is a lot, it's flexible, but it still reflects that its origin, you know, the bulk of D&D material is about adventuring in mazes with rooms filled with monsters and treasure stacked in multiple levels. So if you want to have different types of magic users, then you need to have a setting that makes the life surrounding those magic users interesting so they have interesting adventures. That, that depth of, of system makes sense because every, it's, it's like uh, wizardry is, is, is an important business, as it were. Uh, the, the, the trope of like Pokemon is like being, being a Pokemon trainer is serious business because everyone's a Pokemon trainer. So you have like this huge depth of Pokemon differentiation to make it mean something for everyone to be a Pokemon trainer. It's uh No, we're I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. I'm just riffing. Uh, um 
Now, where it really gets interesting, if you decide to stick with the same setting, so you develop, you ran a campaign where everybody's a magic user. So you run your next campaign where everybody's your traditional mixed group of adventurers. But now all the magic users, you know, the two players that, mm. out of five that play magic users, they got all this rich backstory behind them if they choose the avail. And the other players, they, it's also kind of in their head now too. When they go to the magic shops now, they know some of the stuff that goes behind the scene and they, they're just that much more invested oh that's uh, cool like if you have the same team that's running and like each campaign you're cycling through like a specific skill set and you like really dive deep into it and at the out end of it you've got an incredibly rich world environment where all the systems are heavily flushed out yeah and I, i'm not trying to brag but that's what i've done for the majestic waterland i started it in uh, around 81 82 with ad and d and even though I changed system, I kept with using city state. I kept the waterland. I, I altered it some, expanded it and stuff. You know, I, if any of you follow my blog, no, it's not quite like the Judges Guild original. And but I kept building layer after layer after layer on it. And because I never stuck with the same group, I also had to keep in mind it's got to remain understandable for the next people because they they may not have the history. But it all adds up, and it really helps in later games where I have a, the, these handouts, you know, refined over the years, so they're quick and easy to understand. But yet they reflect the richness of the riches of options and adventure. That's awesome, and that's that's a really important part of magic. Should feel somewhat magical. That you know, part of that is what we talked about is that I, if I'm playing a wizard, I want to feel different than if I were playing, you know, the the fighter or whatever it is. And I think each class should definitely have a different feel to them. Otherwise, there's not a whole point in having that class around. Um, but in a lot of games, it really has, or a lot of groups maybe, uh, it's really gotten away from it being magical. And part of that the the concept of oh i'm just going to go down to the corner magic mart uh feeds into that in my experience there's actually uh an old rpg i think it's called nightlife where if you wanted to play a wizard you were basically a bank robber because you had to buy your spells <laughs> and it really took away from the game everybody's playing vampires and werewolves and you go to the mage and the mage is always you know bumming money from everybody <laughs> That's funny. I don't know if it's what I'd want to play, but that's funny. What game system <laughs> is that again? I believe it was called Nightlife. It's from the late 80s, early 90s. It's on my list of worst magic systems. <laughs> Let's just be blunt about it. The other one was uh, the Iron Kingdoms, where the magic users were so better than everyone else. There really wasn't a reason to play uh, anything else, though... Uh, that game was bad for a lot of reasons. The magic was just part of it. Uh, Iron Kingdoms, that was basically like uh, spellcasters and like big golems, right? I think that's like literally nope. their tagline. Well, yeah. Cheers. <laughs> Marketing then. Well done. Well done. <laughs> nice. It is a uh, a very pretty book on the Iron Kingdoms. I wanted to play it. I still have not gotten to. I bought it when it first came out. And, I uh, tried to run three campaigns. Every campaign died because the players oh. got bored. Uh, it's it a shame. Was because you're not allowed to spend ex you're not allowed to spend experience points 
on what you want to spend it on, it tells you, okay, you go up to this level and this is what you're allowed to buy. You can only buy at this level. You can either buy a, you can only buy skills. And then the next level, you can only buy advantages. Oh, hmm. Hmm. I see. Well, I mean, like third ed D and D did that too, uh, but every level is skills, and then you only get feats every once in a while. Your spells only advance right. every once in a while. Games also uh, have all sorts of limiting factors, unless it's you know hero system, GURPS, uh, yeah. things like that. That they're pretty free form on. Right. It, it'd be interesting. So that the issue have to spend points with Iron on. Kingdom. The problem, yeah, it's interesting to have with Iron Kingdoms I'm done. Yeah. The problem with Iron Kingdoms was it says, okay, you can only spend up to two points on this skill until you get to this level. The problem was Nubinera's the level like to get to the next one was yeah. about 20 levels later. Well, one thing, you know, going from GURPS to uh, Swords and Wizardry was a pretty big difference in customization. Now, I had some customization because I bolted it, what I call an ability system on top of Swords and Wizardry, which is a skill system, which basically, uh, you know, basically was my ruling, okay, what happens if you hag or what happens if you climb a wall? You know, things that Swords and Wizardry was uh, <coughs> relatively uh, silent on and it didn't involve fighting or casting spells. So, um, I had some players could shuffle what bonuses they get with that, but basically you pick a class and that was it and you level. But I found that if you build a kind of life within the class, it becomes more interesting even though the choices are fixed. For example, um, I had a class of magic users called the Order of Thought, which is basically uh, uh, a uh, magic user class and they get they get uh, it's better than the regular magic user because it's part of this organized uh, order of mages that extends throughout the Waterlands, and they teach all their members a limited form of magic resistance called the Shield of Magic. So um, players really like to, uh, you know, it, it, it gives the players a leg up. But what they, what's interesting to them is that, okay, so you start out at first level. Well, you're considered um, basically an apprentice in the order and uh, your job and if you want to become a, a journeyman a full member of the order by fifth level you have to go and you have to bring back three objects so three three items of lore it can be a magic item it can be information it can be a dissected creature if, if the case may be but you have to do three of them and then you have to present that to the uh, order now, there was no mechanical benefit other than the fact that you were allowed to level beyond fifth level to, in the order. And then at the culmination, after the examination, you were given a test. And the players, when they played my Swords and Ministry campaign, the, the, the few that played Order of Thoughts, they really liked it. They found, you know, in that, in that period when, they, when the party was you know, around fourth to fifth level, they were really motivating the party to help them out with you know these lore items and then help them train you know they started talking okay how are you going to tackle this the intelligence test and all this stuff so that's what if you if you're going to have limited advancement choices one way to spice it up is to add up add a bit of role playing on top of it yeah tying in uh those mechanics and things like that i know 
in third edition, it really dropped away, but uh, I had lots of players who used to love needing to train for their levels uh, back in second edition. Really? Um, yeah. That, you know, I mean, because it, it tied them into the world that was around them. Um, and it gave them, you know, more than just, you know, going through the dungeon or whatever it was specifically, but something outside of the focus of that, their quest. And, uh, I, I've all, I always used to enjoy dealing with that. I tried it in third edition a few times, but the, the meta of, uh, role-playing had changed by that point. Um, as to another example, uh, and this is one that I just heard about. This was a, a friend of mine's uh, old, like, first edition, second edition game. And they had a, I think it was like a, a half-elf that wanted to become an assassin or join the Assassin's Guild. And he was told, well, to become an assassin, you, you, need, to, you need to die in your old life. And so he does all the other requirements. And then they go, okay now you're ready and so somebody literally walks up and stabs him in the back and then they reincarnate him and then he comes back and he can join the assassin's guild but he literally has to die uh and they had used you know couched terms for it that he just thought it was kind of a spiritual you know you give up and walk away from everything that came before nah. that's a cool idea you know leverage the effects of a reincarnation on membership in the guild that that I can see that. That could let that have a lot of flavor, actually. Yeah, and I liked back in second edition and older editions and certain systems. I definitely like uh, the quest to level to go and find someone to teach you how to improve something. You're like, well, gee, I I don't know how to do this anymore, and uh, I, I need I I don't know how to do this next thing. I'm way too bored with this one thing, so I've got to go and figure out how to do it. In, in one situation, you know, the, in older editions where there were prohibit, um, where some things were prohibited, like a dwarf can't be a paladin. If you've been playing a fighter in uh, the style of paladin, you know, your GM might decide you are going to be the first dwarven freaking paladin. So during your quest at like seventh level, all of a sudden you go and, you know, you find out when you go to ties to your church, your god's been your God has chosen you and you go and have to quest to meet your, your druid, your animal companion, your mount, and, you know, all sorts of things and have this fun little downtime quest. And recently I was dealing with some friends of mine and I, as a person in real life, um, am told by Brandon and many people, I am a collector of hobbies. And this is one reason why I do well for our back-end technological stuff, because I went from one piece of software, and then I transitioned myself to something more professional, and I kept upgrading. And so I was recently told that I can't keep helping certain people with the same mundane tasks because I like to learn new things, and I stop, and I have stopped gaining XP from helping those stupid people too many times. Times. And those are gray mobs. And I need to be willing to let go, move on and say, I've already given all these people the tools you need to actually go RTFM or go watch the freaking videos we made for you 30 times, you know, 30 different times. And stop asking me personally, because you are a gray mob of eeps and I need to go and learn the next tool. <laughs> it was hilarious. I, I found that very hilarious when he told me that. So it happens in real life too. Apparently, I wasn't realizing that until the person I was working with on a project mentioned that. I forgot how to cook for a while. <laughs> 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 uh, 
<sighs> so, you know, I, I think that it can be done well. You just have to, uh, it, but system definitely can cloud it. And sometimes, you know, you say the system doesn't dictate it, but what system does do is it can, uh, it acts like tinted glasses to, uh, to your GM and to your table. And so, no two tables are going to tint the same way. You can give like 16 tables the exact same system in a vacuum without having them played or watched or done anything else. And all 16 tables will interpret it differently and play it differently. But if you give them a society or a culture or a group that they can already reference, then they're immediately going to learn from that group. Uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, there are going to be things that they pick up. And this is one of the good and the bad things about the internet the way that it is, because we talk about how good information is a lot more readily available. Well, so is a lot of bad information and a lot of disrespectful information, because there are a lot of groups that talk about how you should be disrespecting your GM or disrespecting your players. And then new players come in and they see that or new GMs come in and see that and they think that is the way they're supposed to behave and it creates a negative community. So there are, but there are, on the other hand, there are good communities that do the opposite. Um, but I think that it's, uh, that uh, changing that culture or adjusting that culture can also be an interesting part of how something like this comes about. Changing the, the, just speaking of culture changing and we, mentioned the the training and how it was kind of an accepted part in almost every group I went to in second edition had it um and something that I've noticed is I, people have talked about it before player entitlement that has come about since you know third edition um whether it's third edition's fault or it just kind of happened around the same time period but I I've tried to at times limit people on what they can get in a D&D game and they very much have that opinion of, well, you know, they printed these books, so we're supposed to use this material, where in second edition, I I can't think of a player that would show up and wouldn't say, Do you, can I use, you know, stuff out of the, the complete this or that? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I remember that experience myself. Yeah, Brandon and I are dealing with that a lot recently, especially because it, it is much more entitlement. And, you know, I, I recently saw, uh, you see, you know, in some of these communities, you see a lot of horror stories. You see a lot of great stories, but unfortunately, the way that we are wired, the negative stories tend to stick with us more. And I think that that can be unfortunate because there are far more positive stories than there are going to be negative stories when you're dealing with some of these communities. But one negative story that I saw months and months ago, and this is a friend of a friend, and I don't know the, I don't know the names of the people involved, but uh, it has to do with X cards. And there was a table in a, an organization that ran stuff regularly uh, where they used X cards. The, the GM brought in, a, an enemy uh, for a combat that was basically driders, you know, spider, uh, spider, half spider, half humans, driders. And one of the players says, X card, X card, I have a deadly fear of spiders. GM says, okay, well, I have two alternative monsters I can use for this fight, but this fight needs to happen because there's major plot in this. I can make it scorpion men, half scorpion men, would that be okay? The player throws an absolute hissy fit, basically, table flips, goes knocking futs about how the GM's trying to trigger them, screw them, and that the right way to handle something like this when someone X cards is just give them the XP for the fight and move the bleep on. 
and then the um then the player decides to go to that community and rail against and just go off about this GM. And this apparently, by the way, there was a recording of this game um, that was private to that community. And the, they actually booted the GM from the community and banned him from running. Because apparently, according to the group's rules, if you X card, you're supposed to simply fade to black, give them the XP and move on. And he chose not to. Time to start a new game group. Uh, yeah, and this is a you know organization and this is um this kind of entitlement is becoming more popular by all means and while i agree being respectful of people's um beliefs and people's uh people's triggers and whatnot i think the gm from my perspective offered a very kind solution which is let me just make it a different monster but i need to put plot in here so we need to have this fight and all of a sudden he was in the wrong or she was in the wrong and got kicked from, you know, hundreds of people play that they could have played with. It makes me sad that this kind of stuff happens. I'm just remembering Dorian from Dragon Age Inquisition when he screams out just once, I'd like to go into a dungeon and face normal-sized spiders. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you have organized gaming, you have drama. Yeah. I'm not trying to dismiss the specifics, but you know, I ran a live-action uh, role-playing chapter for and I, I ran a live-action role-playing chapter for eight years and I ran events for uh, 15 years. And uh, you know, we didn't have X-Cards, but it, there was still drama. I mean, it's, it's a different name, same problem. It's an out-of-game issue. The person, well, whoever, whoever was, uh, you know, that player was being rude. He was disrespectful to the, to the guy who put the time in, in setting up the game. And if he, you know, he should have, it should have been taken out of game and dealt with. And, My, we've yeah. always had the X card though. And that's this, <clears throat> the fact that it's this new innovation. It used to just be called talk to the people around you. Right. And, uh, uh, that's uh, and I get uh, within the the world that we live in that you know a lot of games are like living games or something like that where you don't know anybody and some people will feel uncomfortable. But for a lot of your home game type environments, I I just like talk to the people around you guys. This makes me uncomfortable. We don't need to get into it past that really. I I've never needed something official. I mean, yeah, you got to be able to read your table. I mean, the only time I've oh, actually I've seen two people get escorted out, one because he had a personal beef with somebody else and would not leave his divorce alone. And uh, then the infamous Pony Boy story, which I think I told last time. I, I believe that was gone over. Yeah. Yeah. I had an incident where I ran over time running an adventures in Middle Earth game and the guy was uh, a bit of a rules lawyer which you know i know how to luckily i know the rules is better than he did and uh uh but he was just bitching up a storm and luckily the table stuck up for me and said you know dude you could have laughed but 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 so and one player one guy went so you stayed because you liked the game and he ran over. So, what exactly are you losing? <laughs> you know. And, and uh, 
So yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's a, you have to be, you know, I look at it. Uh, there's an out of game uh, side of the running running things, and there's there's the in game. And out of game, you got to be a coach for the players who are not quite sure of itself, and you got to insist, including including for yourself, everybody exhibits good sportsmanship. And you also have to question the players that if they have some sort of phobia, why are they playing a game where? Wait, how many types of different giant spiders are there in D anD D? Like fifteen. It's a major category of monsters. Yeah, it's like okay. It's like I don't like guns, so why are you playing cyberpunk? Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, a very, very, very long time ago, uh, I was at a table where the GM said. Hey, you know, this this is a living campaign, an organized game, you know, an organized convention table where not everyone necessarily knows everyone. And I happened to we happened to have played with the GM a few times. We, you know, we got along with him, but we didn't know him all that well by that point. And we didn't know everybody at the table all that well at that point. But the GM said, Hey, we're all adults at this table. This mod has some intense stuff, but you guys mind if I run the adult version? We were all like, yeah, we're adults. We had no idea what the content was. And due to certain things in my history and suffering PTSD at the time, I ended up getting very, uh, I had a very negative reaction. And uh, I I had a PTSD episode that lasted about a week where I would not let any of my friends near me. Uh, I, I was in a full on episode. And that was not the GM's fault, in my opinion, because the GM had no idea because um, and I, I became very uncomfortable. I wasn't even in a mental state to be able to tell him X card if we w- if we were using X cards at the time. To be honest, when that thing came up, by that point I would have I was already unable to X card it. At the same time, uh, you know that was like twenty years ago, and something I have learned is that D and D and RPGs are a great method of therapy because in the real world, when something like that happens to you. And when, when, whether you're at war or you deal with abuse or a hundred different things that cause some severe uh, trauma in your mind, you don't have a way to confront it. And therapy, a lot of types of therapy are trying to get you to confront it, trying to take charge, trying to give you personal agency. But I, I tried a lot of those things and they didn't really help. Something I found in role playing though is that it gives me that player agency and I was able to work through PTSD. I know f- I have friends who've done similar. Um, we ha- There's an entire organization, RPG Research, that specifically uses, utilizes RPGs to do stuff like this to get people at, over PTSD because out in the real world, when something like that triggers you, you can't do anything about it. But in game, when something like that, you can say, well, I'm the freaking hero. It's not going to happen this time. And you can change the narrative in your brain. I think it's so. I think and that people going into the X card triggers the way that they do sometimes. I think it can sometimes be a disservice to themselves and the people at the table. To in in certain situations, I'm not saying there are not situations that it should be used, but in some situations when it's too knee jerk, I think that it can be a disservice to everyone, including themselves. Well, I. One thing, I'm sorry. No, I was saying one thing you do have to do, especially for a new game, is get the players familiar with the game first. Um, I was talking about that Spanish RPG that I that I did my mad musing on my channel, uh, Aquilari. And uh, if you've got players that aren't familiar with the art of Hieronymus Bosch, they're in for a rude surprise. And uh, 
you know, it, it's got mature themes. It handles them maturely, but for players used to Dungeons and Dragons and you end up, you're flipping through pages and it's like, it's art done in the style of medieval wood carvings where you've got demons hanging guys by their naughty bits. Uh, it can be a shock. Hold on, I'll put up the review. Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, even, even. When it comes to my experience with uh, organized uh, play, especially LARP, is that trying to do, even when you, you know, have clear, like, this is going to be adult, this is going to be mature, it, it just, it really works. In, it doesn't work in the long term. It, it, it just, even before X card, some people, you know, you try, you, you, but I, the way I explain it to people learning to run events or role play, live action role playing event, it's just don't have rape in your game. Yes, there's there's, there's just happens. no way. I mean, I'm not talking specifically about that. There's a class of issues like rape. Okay. Yes. And it's just, if you want to refer to something like rape, the closest you can come, and I, I know I'm a town authoritative, but this is more like experience. You just say the person was assaulted, and let the let the players fill in the detail. What they let them think what what assaulted means. So if a farmer comes and say that knight assaulted my daughter, and you can go there, but don't go further. Because it just doesn't work. Even if you put, I'm running an adult session. Because, you know, when you have an organization, I, you know, I had a I had an organization of 100 players, which 40 of them would show up at an event every month. And the only way to, to is just had to keep it PG-13. Not because people would threaten to shut you down, but if the with that many crew groups, with that many sensibilities, you know, and it's the same way with uh, running games uh, tabletop. I will have mature themes, but I will always tune it to so it's PG thirteen. You know. Yeah, well, and there was that uh, YouTube uh, thing that happened. I don't know about a month ago, where uh, one of the the players uh, had their character basically assaulted that she was playing an android of some sort. And uh, he the, was, the, yeah, he was he was talking. I think he was talking just like uh, too much innuendo. I mean, uh, yeah, I watched the scene. I don't know if any of you have. I watched uh, her talk about it afterwards, but I didn't know uh, what to look for for the scene. You watched, I know, when I was at work. By the, I, by the time I, the I, I heard about it, the scene had been taken down. Okay, he yeah. was not anyone doing during the active scene. I watched the okay. active scene. Um, he actually told her, um, "We are we are adult content here, right? We're adult flagged." Brian. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, he actually told her that he's that the um, that the guy, the NPC, held the stick, this wand thing, and shoved it into a port she didn't really know she had. And then came the robot, the robot version of an orgasm. And he went into that and how her systems freaked out and how she was unable to react and move because it was the, that, and it was not innuendo at all. It was very clear. And she told the GM, 
that her character was attempting to scream for help twice during the situation. When Once when the guy started getting creepy, she was like, I think my character would call for help. Um, and then one of the other players said, I'm right outside the door. If she calls for help, I'm jumping in. The GM said, you're not able to call for help right now. The second time was during her robot version of an orgasm that she was forced on her. She tried to call for help and he told her that she wasn't able to call for help. So the the party that was sitting at outside the door who that thought it was creepy and was worried was not able to enter to save her and protect the Android because, and the GM was not in the window. It was stick. It was orgasm. And then I will skip some of the other statements that were made. Sounds oh, like they could, have followed, they could have followed Rob's rule there and then, because you could have told the same story, you know, yeah. that an assault. And, yeah. Yes. I would have said something like, the evil, the, the the demonic cult leader charms you, and in the ceremony, unspeakable things happen to you. Then I would turn to the player. It's 15 minutes later. She, you hear her screaming. What do you do? And I will not go into any level of detail on that. There's no, oh. not 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 for this kind of thing. <laughs> like, oh God. They really, really tried to roleplay something like that. Watching that kind of mortified me. Uh, and I'm someone that, like, no, if I have, I try and keep things PG-13 at my tables. BWK has a PG-13 policy, meaning if you swear once in a while, we're not going to ding you. But if you start swearing regularly, we're going to have a problem. If you go into content that is a little too gruesome and without fading to black, you know, or basically giving broad strokes, we're going to, you know, comment. I try and keep things PG-13. If I have the right table, I will go to the higher end of that PG-13 because, like, I have had NPCs at the table, uh, NPCs where the characters have to help them through PTSD, dealing with PTSD or a character's PTSD that they've told me about triggered and stuff like that. And I won't go into extensive detail, but I'll just say you're feeling that PTSD because the scene right here brings back memories of such and such. And, you know, you, you keep it kind of on that lower, you know, you don't, you don't need to go into gruesome detail because people can, people can extrapolate for themselves. This is why it's a game of imagination. Our imagination will, like uh, what was said, I think it was Glenn, uh, but maybe it was Rob, is just like, my daughter was assaulted. It doesn't matter what that was. People will fill in, and with all sorts of things, the horror isn't us seeing uh, the, the flash, the scare, somebody jump out and scream on the movie screen. That might make you jump in your seats, but horror is what your imagination is going to fill in on what might happen in these scenes. And it's not just, you know, my daughter was assaulted, but all sorts of things. Allow them to fill in. And therefore, it will be, generally, it'll be more appropriate to whatever their sensibilities are. And, exactly. and also, also, a lot of times, it'll be worse than what you can come up with for them. Is the truth of it. Uh, I recently GM'd a game that is um, horror-esque. Uh, it's uh, Apocalypse Prevention Incorporated by um, Eloy, uh, Eloy LaSanta, and I forget the company right now. Um, Brandon, can you help Third me? Third Eye Games. Third Eye Games, thank you. It's a Third Eye Games game. And uh, in one of the scenarios that I ran for that, uh, they went to deal with an oil spill, and the monster – and I looked into our real-world stuff. I was trying to get art and artwork and such – um, and I was looking into oil spills and looking at it, I'm like, dude, these are like straight out of Cthulhu. Like at one point I'm, I'm looking at the seashore 
covered with kelp and all the kelp is covered with oil. And all I could think of was those look like tentacle monsters, like swarms of <laughs> tentacle monsters. So I brought mm. that into the game because, and, and you know, it, it really freaked people out. It was awesome. I was laughing because you said don't uh, don't go into gruesome detail, but every time I try to do that, the players want to uh, role play the autopsy. Oh my god! <laughs> and that is a, a one thing I've thought about this whole time. Is, yeah. But then they're going to start asking questions. Yeah. Okay, so, you yeah. see a gruesome scene. Okay, uh, but then you go on. Wait, wait, wait! I want I want to weigh the liver. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, you're, you're going to have you're going to have. Oh, sorry, go on. I've, I've just found that teams are far more open to body horror than um, than uh, uh, violating people's personal rights and and their their own act of agency. And that's so, true. You the sure. Well, I think part of that statement comes from the fact that horror is um is a genre that takes away agency in the short term, but allowing you long-term agency in theory because it lets you see what goes bump in the night. It lets you um, it lets you combat it in some senses. Even Cthulhu games where you know you're pretty powerless, people find agency in that. Whereas something like what you're talking, you know, like violation, there is no recovery or taking back that agency in most circumstances for people. Uh, and I think that that's a big difference. One of our friends who played Cthulhu, he actually specifically would always play. Uh, <laughs> yes, I grabbed that as one of my art pieces. God, that's um, I, I cut the people out of it and I just showed the players the ooze tentacles of the oil spill. Um, yes, as she also showed us the, the the horrible conditions out there and all, and we just were waiting. I was waiting for Sarah McLaughlin <laughs> to start singing the soundtrack for, oh, for the role-playing session. I, I totally forgot what I was going to say, but I will just mention this, that they were freaked out enough by what, what I was bringing to them that they ended up getting RC cars and put Molotov cocktails on them and drove them into the oil spill. And so all of a sudden there was a five-mile inferno of the oil spill because it was sentient oil from another dimension mentioned basically and so the oil spill with all the tentacles and everything they were fighting just lit on fire in a five mile radius it was quite hey. interesting for combating it wasn't that hey, one of the hey, hey. creep show i didn't do that <laughs> so i was just at a you know i've been play role playing since uh 78 and uh now thinking back during the uh 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 middle eighties, just when I was getting out of college, you know, a lot of the, you know, when we were in, I was in high school and stuff, you know, we were high school, most of us high school boys. Uh, and, uh, you know, we kind of pushed the envelope a few times and it was kind of looking back was kind of, eh. and, uh, as we go on though, as we moved on, you know, the stuff got old, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. it wasn't, what was more interesting was the larger picture. And, you didn't need to fill in the uh, details in order to get the tension from the larger picture. And, you know, basically that's right. You know, the older we got, the, uh, the less we were interested in, you know, trying to fill out every bit of torture scene or weighing the liver and the autopsy. However, if it's a specific group, sometimes that, that even now that, that, that becomes a thing. It just, you know, you're with a group of friends. It's not really a public. It's not a public game. It's just right. and, and you're mm -hmm. comfortable with each other. And you 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 all got your own. Every group, every little group has their own brand of humor or what they find interesting. 
Sure. Well, sometimes, sometimes they play it up, and but there's okay. also a difference between that and and basically playing out or forcing some creepy fantasy on a bunch of people that don't necessarily want to. I mean, we can kind of tell the difference between that. Like you said, if you you've got a group of friends and they want to role play the autopsy, um, you know, and it's like a really horrific thing or whatever. Okay, um, but you've all agreed to that. And it's not like, like I said, it's not like you're trying to force some weird, some weird fetish or something onto somebody that's not willing at the table. In my no, game, my player, in my little bit of background, I was a licensed forensic pathologist back out of high school, blood spatter. So my groups tend to, uh, you know, they, they were picking on me because of, you know, the, they were trying to get into my background, but we've had like one person that played a uh, coast guard guy that wanted to do an inspection and it bored all the other players, but he was doing what he knew how to do. Uh -huh. So for us, blood, you know, for me, you know, I've been covering somebody else's blood on more than one occasion. It doesn't bother me in the slightest other people. It does. Well, the, the actually there were, I had a fairly recent example of someone we were talking about. Um, I had a friend, works in human services and uh he has a client and uh he works with adults now but he works with the kids and we had a campaign where we had to deal extensively with the criminal out uh underworld and uh and this is this is not a public game this is pr private we've been playing together for years and you know one of the criminals was into child slavery and uh he didn't describe it in gruesome detail but he there was detail. And, you know, after the second session, he said, you know, can we cut back on that? Because, you know, from my job, you know, it's just not going into a good place for me. Yeah. And so we, we just talked, we talked about it for 15 minutes. And then the next game, we knew the guy was still involved in Child of the Silver, but we didn't, re we really got, he dialed the gloss and over the detail way, way high. So... And yeah, I, I would just to say the player took a lot of pleasure when we took that asshole down. <laughs> well, yeah, I had a uh, I had a, a second edition Dungeons and Dragons team back in early '90s that uh, the the campaign in, went into a tangent of going into a large metropolis, and uh, the halfling rogue in the party stumbled into a human trafficking circle when trying to connect with the uh with the thieves guild in the community and it we we had um only like the, the lightest touch on describing you know this is this is somebody that's targeting kids and that's all the team needed to know exactly what we were talking about and they developed what they called quote the routine where they knew that they needed to do a number of stealth checks and charisma rolls to be able to set up their target to accept the halfling rogue's fake identity as being the the type of person that was ordered. And then they would go through sneak attack um, or they would choose bribery and extortion or they would choose um, finding incriminating evidence. But it became a routine of theirs to basically distract and then ransack behind the scenes without describing anything. It was just strictly the routine. They all grabbed dice and just threw them out. And it's like, here's the numbers that we pulled. Are we going to be able to take this guy down? 
Well, yeah, that works, you know. It was great. I mean, it was great though, because the, I mean, the social. I mean, I think it really comes down to social contracts. Like the contract that we had is like we don't want to talk about this, but we love the idea of of impacting that side of society. And for our team, knowing in the back of our heads what it is that we're dismantling here and where we're getting our money from, was was all the detail we really needed. It was just background stuff for us to generate wealth then the game would quickly move on to more heroic fantastical you know fight flying dragons and bloody blah from there but mm. uh but they always had that they always had that seedy knowledge that that extorting and and turning the tables back on these people for hurting other people was the root of where their money came from they actually had a lot of satisfaction from that knowledge without having to dive into it so i don't know that's just a perspective i guess that's pretty awesome. Um, I know one that kind of y you made me think about. There was a Living City module towards the end of uh, Living City days, um, where and I, it was like First Link or something like that. It was uh, one of the la last worbs that they did, and there was a slavery ring that was like four different adventures were tied into this, but this was the first one, and it was it was very much in what wasn't there that you were told uh, during the buy-in that there was the slavery ring you were investigating. And then you went and you found the chains, but there were no people there and such like that. And so it was, you know, you knew what was going on. There were the, the accoutrements of, you know, slave trade and such, but you didn't have the need for that. Some of those darker elements that you'll get tied up in. And uh, the GM did a really good job because I still remember it. And that's, uh, you know, about 20 years ago, almost. To, to be yeah. honest, slavers have always been a classic D&D &D villain with the uh, the Slave Lord series and then the Iron Ring from the Nostara setting. Stabbing those guys is just tradition. Well, a lot of people, City State of the Invincible Overlord had slavers. So In theory, you can buy, you can... You can buy slaves if you want. And that, let me tell you, that doesn't go well over these days. Well, yeah, and it's it's how you present it, the the content, and too, right? Like you said, if you present it at a high level and say, "Here's how it is. This is bad," or whatever. Um, in our game, we had the most civilized cities basically outlawed slavery, but at the same time, it's a uh, it's obviously a very human condition. It's a human. Um, it's it's a story that pretty much every culture is familiar with. So if you're trying to build a a deeper universe, um, it's definitely a topic that could be included. Yeah, the way I the way I you know the way I present it these days is because been a long time since a PC had bought a, tried to buy a slave. Uh, I'm talking 20 years long. Um, as far as city-state goes, at least my take on it, it's, it's viewed as on one hand, you have a part of the city-state that you have temples of good deities and people healing and people trying to do right things, and then you have the slave market, which are sanctioned by the rulers of the slave uh, city and it highlights the fact <laughs> in my in my take the rulers of city state the current king you know overlord it, he's not part of the dominant culture he's part of what they, what I call the Syrian horse lord and they, they came in and conquered city state so it highlights their 
that that more than anything else highlights their alienness because the Therians don't care that they're slave slave running. While the dominant culture of city state, they care, but they can't do anything because they're powerless in this instance. I mean, they're not slaves themselves, but they're not in charge anymore because they were conquered a hundred years ago. So, if you, I found that a very successful uh, use of. Uh, having a city with open slavery in it that the PCs adventure in. Yeah, when I did the Mastara book, uh, piecing everything together, I found about half of the uh, nations used slaves, but none of them used the same type of slavery. You had chattel slavery, you had ancient Roman and that style of slavery, you had prisoners of war, uh, you had like the Vikings had their style with the bondsmen and even the, uh, the, Indi the American Indians had a, a, a slave cast as well. And it was different from setting to setting. They were, they were all basic slaves, but the way they handled them was entirely unique, depending on what nation we're talking about. Yeah, doing that really helps. I, I, I For example, I have this, uh, you know, the Verdistan Empire to the west of city-state, and that's ruled by uh, the ruling caste of that empire, literally, or demons, you know, they escaped the abyss and they carved out an empire. They're not very numerous, but they and uh, they were only able to expand so far. But they have, you know, Latifunda-style estates there where slaves are kept in barracks. You know, really horrifying stuff. In city-state, it's more, more like, not like that. I mean, it's just more like how the ancient world used to handle slavery. You can buy a slave, but they're an investment, so you're not going to, you know, gang, you know, run them in gangs or anything like that. You're gonna, you want to get money off your what you pay for it, and uh, but so players, you know, when they saw that going on in Verdistan, they really hated them for that compared to what was happening in City State. They didn't like what's happening in City State, but they hated what was going on in Verdistan because it's a different type of slavery. Um. Very long time ago, I ran a game dealing with slavery in a, a different bent than what you guys were talking about. I actually went to my players and said that I have a pitch for a game, and what it's going to be is that you guys are going to be a small town, a relatively small-ish town, that were founded by ex-slaves. And you guys need to all basically be connected to this town in one fashion or another because uh, this one NPC it, who was very, very wealthy came across Thayan slave traders and said, I'm going to buy them off you. And the traders were like, well, we're, we're just going to go sell them for money. So if you can beat that price or match that price, sure, you can have all these slaves. And so when the guy bought the slaves, they then, he then established them as a free city and established them into a town and helped them basically build an infrastructure and then went back to his home and uh, retired, continuing to do his, um, his merchant business. And so the PCs were from that town where they had this, uh, where basically either their generation or the generation just before them were all slaves and how that affected them uh, in the way that they approached life. We had one character who was the most entitled of them, who was basically sent there because he was the son of the merchant that bought the the town or created the town and he was entitled. So he was sent there to learn how to be humble and learn some humility and 
and became a very interesting story. It was a, a very interesting backdrop to run with. Brandon was at that table. Yeah, I was uh, I was the other one that was not directly a slave. Instead, I was an elf that uh, there were woods nearby. And so I was uh, acted kind of as a, a local ranger keeping some of the problems off of the town and such and was trying to help them, even though I had those deep-seated uh, elven prejudices built into me. And some of the characters were able to overcome those, while other characters absolutely lived up to those prejudices that the elves have. And uh, I didn't care for those characters very much. So I think that there is a lot of story that you can do without just necessarily going to the standard uh, standard options that people often see. There's a lot of variety in the genres we tackle with role-playing. Yes. I think and that people got to remember, I'm sorry. No, please go. People got to remember, you know, let, let's just take uh, the Greyhawk campaign and the fact that uh, OD&D was developing. There's a lot of material for running dungeons in OD&D. But because it's focused on individual character, even though it's minimal, it still potentially uncovers an entire the entire world of the setting. Even if Gygax only detailed uh, that dungeon, there was an entire world of Greyhawk around it. And that's the truth for anybody's campaign. So if you don't like what's going on or you don't like some of it, just try shifting to a different region of your setting or a different stratum of society within your setting and see what happens. And, you know, that's always a way to get uh, variety and to maybe avoid some things that are not so fun. Yep. So <laughs> as long as we're on this uh, topic of, you know, uh, where is too much? Um, I only caught a little bit about this from a few years ago when uh, White, I, I think it was White Wolf at the time, but for their one of their vampire fifth edition books that they basically canned the line. They, you know, license was brought in underneath um, Onyx Path and, you know, they were taking a much more oh, strong hand with it. But to me, I, I never knew uh, the full thing. I knew it's like about Somali pirates or something else that's going on in modern day. And that they got a lot of criticism for what happened. Um, because it was using modern day tragedies for fodder, basically for the stories. And to me, that's was core in white wolf is that they had always been doing that. And I'm just wondering uh, what exactly went on with the specific thing that was, was it just a straw that broke the camel's back or was it something worse than normal? No, it was just, uh, if I remember, uh, I have to look up into it, but yeah, no, it was just regular everyday stuff. I mean, yeah, it was the bad stuff, but it's a horror game. Hold on, let me bring up the article. <clears throat> yeah, I've read a few of the articles, but they they very much backdropped, and I know some people had the the PDFs that you know they specifically had a problem with, and I don't know, I. I... We use World War Two uh, for all sorts of things. And we do still have people alive that were greatly affected, not only by what the Germans did, but by what the Americans did on our own soil to people of Asian descent, not just Japanese. Well, you know, it, it, 
I, I would characterize it as fundamentally irrational because, you know, with World War II, you had Hogan's Heroes in the 60s. That was a popular TV series for a time. You know, how can you make a series like Hogan's Hero about such a situation, you know, in mm-hmm. World War II? But yet, you know, if you watch it, uh, you know, it's funny, you yeah. know, and, but, you know, but however, there were aspects of World War II where they never did anything like uh, Hogan's Heroes, for example, the uh, the death camp and stuff like that. They never made a comedy, you know, based off of, of, of that. Okay. Yeah, I, I found it off of the White Wolf website. Apparently in the book, it mentioned that some of the Baruha were Nazis. Hmm. We're not what? We're Nazis. Yes. Oh, I remember that now. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I don't follow this because the Get of Fenris have always had Nazis in them. And that, wow. Well, you see, if you were a vampire, that was bad. If you were a Nazi, <laughs> that was bad. And if you were a Nazi vampire, I, I think the New Zealanders already covered this. Yeah. I didn't. I don't want to get like down a down the rabbit hole, but I figured I might as well ask since we're kind of on the same t- kind of topic. Well, things change too. I mean, when I was growing up, right, my, using my example of Hogan's Heroes, you know, people took World War II seriously when I was growing up in the late '60s and in early '70s. But as time goes on, you know, I don't know. It sunk in for the la- latter later generations. And now people don't find it very humorous at all, except for maybe something that's a classic like Catch-22. I mean, I had a recent TV series on Prime, but, uh, yeah, it comes and goes, you know, different generations view it differently. Famously, just recently, uh, Deadlands stripped out any mention of the Confederacy in a game set in the Civil War. Yeah, that seems like overkill. Now, I'm well, say- my, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead first. Well, I could tell you that my heart attitude about Confederacy and Confederacy symbolism has hardened over the years. Once, once I dug into the history and saw how much assholes those guys were not just African Americans, but poor white Southerners who didn't, you know, had the wealth, and how much. I'm, I'm not going to go into it, but just to say, I read up the history. And read some of the primary evidence that was offered in those books, and and it's just, there's no, there's very little in the redeeming quality in the cause of the South. I, I'm not making any argument for the, you know, for the, for the Confederacy, but I was no, no. To be clear, I don't think you were. I'm just saying yeah. <laughs> it would hard, be hard for me to enjoy anything where a, a Confederate soldier or ex-Confederate was a protagonist, you know, or treated lightly. It would be hard for me these days compared to when I was 20. That's fair. I mean, it's sort of like people who would have a hard time, you know, they might have a hard time seeing another political faction or whatever fighting faction as a uh, protagonist. Um, However, you know, that's, that's, yeah, so like at your table, you just probably wouldn't want to play that. Um, but I imagine that there's people that do, you know, play games like that or that they play the exception. Um, but it does seem odd to me that you would remove it from 
uh, a game set in that that era in that geographic location that well, seems a little weird i mean they've already when death hands came out i mean they had already altered the timeline it was 1876 civil war was still going on the slavery was gone slavery had been removed from deadland before that because mm -hmm. in the fluff wise the british said lose the slaves or we won't support you in the war and then because of all of the uh, the death from uh, the war women had achieved equal status and racism was largely gone so they've kind of removed racism and all of that from the game as a whole mm -hmm. But then they just went. But now, years and years, like twenty-five years later, they've decided. Well, it's it's too uh, it's too controversial. Well, it's not just uncontroversial. It's bad alternate history. There's no way to. There's no way of finagling a non-racist. Uh, I mean, no slavery. Yeah, I could buy that. But non-racist, you've got to be kidding me. So it's just up. It's just it's it's like it's like uh, the Germans invading England after the fall of France. You know that's always a popular, but when you dig into it, you quickly find out it was impossible for the Germans to do it. In order for a German to have a successful invasion of England, the 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 point of departure for your alternate history had to be set decades or years earlier because they just didn't have the equipment or the means to do it. And the same with the non-racist uh, Confederate society. It was just too too much of what they were. Well, the, the, a lot of that stems from the economic interests of the, uh, of, you know, the wealthy at that time. So that's perpetuated by that. And without that, their economic interests at stake, you probably wouldn't have continued to have a war. But I don't know, as far as alternate history goes. In Deadlands, the war was continued because the undead would show up and help whichever side was losing at the time. So they didn't really care about alternate history. They threw in, uh, you know, they threw in the, the bad guys in the form of undead horrors. Alice, I think you've been trying to get in for a little while. Yeah, well, I just wanted to say that I'm going to add a rather unpopular opinion in the way that some of this stuff is handled because I see that in modern day, we have more and more whitewashing of our history. We're always taught that if we don't learn from our history, we're doomed to repeat it. And that's very, very true. The problem is, is that we keep whitewashing our history away and therefore we can't learn from it. We keep teaching people that it's, you know, it's uncomfortable, so don't face it. Um, in the real world, we have people who are pulling up statues of um, people who were once slavers, generals that were once slavers. And yes, they were generals for the losing team. They were slavers, etc. And it is a scar on the land. But if we wash away those scars, we won't remember that. In 20 years, nobody will ever, you know, the next generation won't know that there was ever a statue there. They won't know what a horrible human being that guy was, even though he was a great general. They won't know why not to go in that direction. And I think that whitewashing some of our games has a similar effect that by shirking away that uncomfortableness and I mean yes it's uncomfortable but once again I'll deal you know certain GMs they can hit that point without needing to um, hit it like uh, certain other you know certain situations and I think that that partially comes from tact and knowing your table but it, you can it, the 
So a long time ago, we were playing a superhero game, and this was the first superhero game one of our players was playing in. And afterwards, he came back a couple weeks later, and he said, I think that the superhero game is starting to affect my brain. Uh, and we're like, why? He's like, well, because I saw this old lady, and he's a college kid. And he's like, he saw this elderly lady who was struggling with some um, bags um, on a street corner, and she was literally struggling with it. And so... Before, he would have never thought to help her. But after playing the superhero game for a while, he went, ran over to her down the street and said, can I help you get to and, you know, get this uh, to where you need it to go? And the old lady was like really in shock that somebody would actually ask that. And, you know, he just had to walk her two blocks to get her into her apartment, apparently. And I think that similar things can happen if you are able to... Um, bring that to your table and say, we're not whitewashing, we're educating, we're showing people why this is wrong. Because, because if you're going to play a hero in a game, you need to know why something is wrong, why the bad guys are bad guys without going overboard. You know, well, I, I, mean? I agree with that as far as role playing, not, not, I don't agree with the, that uh, pulling down statues of Confederate heroes as uh, whitewashing, but that's a, that's a different debate, but yes, as far as your point is, incorporating uh, that kind of thing in a campaign done tastefully, that can be a that can be a great teaching tool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why we have like you know we talked about uh, we had this whole conversation about having you know if if slavery is a um, a concept in the game world, and if if you remove it, then that's a big part of, uh, of of evil that's prevalent like i said in virtually every culture um and if your heroes are supposed to be fighting evil you know then you've just removed something that they would uh you know be going up against but obviously yeah everybody at the table needs to be comfortable too i think it's it's a little weird for me when if you're in a game that's got to be historically accurate or that the setting is touted as historically accurate that uh I think you wouldn't want to whitewash that at all. But I agree. You don't sugarcoat it. I agree with that completely. And but a lot of people are wanting to whitewash that more and more. And to me, I've seen I go into some of these games and I'm like, you know, and I'm not asking you to be super gruesome or stuff like that because once again, I like to keep things PG-13. But I want you to show me why the bad guy is a bad guy, what the horrors of the real world are. And, you know, the like was uh, like Bruce was just saying a little while ago uh, that the my choice of uh, the oil spill from another plane kind of thing, uh, that real world atrocities are not very prevalent in gaming and such like that, that we don't see a lot of that. And we should is the truth, because. I honestly did not know some of the some of the pictures that I researched up. I did not realize how bad some of that was. I knew in a in a distant way how bad uh, oil spills were, but it was not to the graphicness of what I saw. And I certainly did not share that level of graphicness with my players. But some of it was like, oh my gosh, my stomach. I think I'm not. I think I might lose my lunch, kind of thing. Now, here's the thing, though. If you go down that road. Um... And, you know, we talk about things that are, you know, evil or bad or whatever. And you're, um, things aren't, you know, the, oftentimes the way they're presented to us in story form or in movies and things like that, uh, are, they're very one-dimensional. It's very much, you know, here's the rebellion, you know, and here's the empire. And 
And the truth is, is that people are very complex. I mean, you have people, you know, like Schindler, you know, who's this guy on the inside who's arguably, obviously conflicted um, and trying to work with. So, you know, it, once you start going into dark places like that, then, you know, those things come out too. So there's where you end up with your weird sort of like, is this person that's, you know, on the, the quote unquote wrong side, are they uh, a hero or not? You know, those kinds of questions. Uh, so there's so also Jack Bauer. Um, Brandon and I have ended up in a lot of debates with people about Jack Bauer being, in Brandon and I's perception, in a nine-point um, alignment system, he's very much on the evil side. He is lawful evil. He is willing to do the worst things in the world, kill his own boss, kill his own family mm -hmm. in order for the greater good. And some people are like, oh no, that's what a hero should be. That's what, it, he's lawful good. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> it, you know, there, there's a interesting lines of where, of perception. And I think part of that is how people, how people are represented because, uh, you know, in, in games like this, go out and murder people, murder hobos. That can be okay. Yeah. Uh, when in truth, well, if you're that kind of a murder hobo, you're really not the good guy. And if you're needing to make, if you're the type of person that says ends justify the means while you, while I agree, you might be doing some good. You're not the person who has the most hope in the world. And you're not the person who sees the best in the world either. And that's something that good aligned people tend to be is see the good and have hope and have more faith and trust. But if you're the type of person that's like, well, I'm just going to go out and be willing to kill my own family because it's for the greater good. Uh, or, you know, or my boss shoot him in the back of the head. Uh, yeah. Well, well, yeah. So, you guys are f familiar with the mythology of Sep versus Mitra from Conan. Yes. Myth. Oh, yeah. So, so that's always been, because of the Judges Guild Dark Tower module, that's always been a centerpiece of my uh, campaign. But the wrinkle I did was that in the Majestic Waterlands, there are demons. And they represent absolute evil, corruption, supernatural. There are no... I have never... I have consistently, in all the years I've ran it, there's never been a demonic anti-hero. And if there was, it was the demon lie. It turned out the demon was a liar. Uh, because Mainly because, in a supernatural sense, their, their soul is mangled beyond all repair. So... However, so all the... But the god... All the gods... Are against our foes of the demon, but not all the gods espouse philosophies that people want to live under. And the classic example is that versus Mitra, when players encountered it in my campaign. Now Mitra is the goddess of justice, honor, and you know there are paladins of Mitra and. You know, the Church of Mitra healed and raised dead. All the traditional things attributed to the lawful good uh, church. And for various reasons, they are, the Church of Set is the Church of Mitra's bitter foes. Now, the Church of Set is what you would call lawful evil, in that they believe that they have a strict hierarchy, and they uh, believe in absolute those in the lower rank must follow the orders of the higher rank or be put in their place, even killed if they disobey. 
And yet, both church will go after demons. However, in every depiction, you know, the players interact with a with a uh, uh, a priest of set. Uh, well, the set, the church of set has its own paladin called Mer, that I call Myrmidons. You know, they're evil, but they have a reason for being what they are. They're just they just live that. You know, they just live in a way that most cultures, most players at their character do not want to live like that. They don't want to live in a strict hierarchical society, always having to obey and and always have, you know, the duty. So that has uh, been a very interesting dynamic in my campaign because they go deal with the set and they, they, they try. Sometimes the player would put them on the same pedestal as the demons, but then they interact. The demon, they they. they it's always the right, nearly always turned down in the end the right thing to kill a demon. But with a satite, it's not always the case. So that's how, so that way in my campaigns, I have a shade of gray aspect to it. And then I have, you know, there's also a black and white aspect as well. And it's been a really good thing. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. And all my deities. So, you know, I have 10 major deities and three out of the 10 espouse philosophies that are, that most cultures find unpleasant. You know, there's said I mentioned, there's Hamakis, the judge. He was originally a judge of the dead. And then uh, after the war that imprisoned the demon in the, in the abyss, Hamakis uh, found this chaos orb uh, to uh, use a weapon against the demon and he kept it after the war and however unfortunately he has to feed it human souls in order to keep it under control so his religion you know human sacrifice is a major part of his religion and his religion teaches the culture, the cultures that follow it that you're doing your bit, you're saving the world from this chaos orb that only Hamakis can control, and you know every other culture around him is evil. You know human sacrifice, and it's blessed. And then the last one is a, a goddess who was assaulted by demons and never really recovered, and she just. She basically, uh, her religion's a murder cult. And, uh, you know, players rarely, you know, there's been a few instances of players cooperating with her cultists, but for the most part, you know, they, they are, they're bad guys. And the other religions, you know, they, you know, players have a lot, <laughs> a lot more comfortable to deal with. Well, I think it's definitely uh, that. I mean, that definitely sounds more like the kind of game world that I like to play in, instead of all of the, you know, gods um, and the cults being necessarily um, just, you know, oh well, this is where we send the priest or the cleric or whatever we call them to go and you know get us holy water and spells and stuff like that. Um, it's I I've um, of course. I, I've read a lot of Howard, and um, he's, you know, for some of his faults, uh, I don't think that one of them is the fact that he 
sort of gives us these rich uh, ancient sort of like religious cults that are uh, sometimes quite frightening. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I uh, tried to. I'm sorry. Go on. Oh, I was actually about to say we probably need to move into product um, uh, product review soon and promotion. But uh, if you had something else to add to that, go ahead. No, no. We talked a lot this evening about that kind of stuff. I think, I think I'm good. <laughs> yeah, we didn't. Uh, I didn't really. I, I'm beginning to wonder if we even need topics anymore. I'll just, you know, let you guys come in here and. And chat. We transition pretty decently most of the time, it seems. I know. Well, it's interesting you were talking about magic system when I got here because oh. one of the things I'm doing now, it, a lot of what I do when I write, I write what I what I play, and my players in the last over a month were saying, "Rob, we would like you to run a five E campaign. We respect what you do with the uh, swords and wizardry, but we like we want our mechanical bits to fiddle with." So finally, I agree, and I I started with Barbarian at the top of the list, and I'm working, I'm basically writing, rewriting my Majestic Waterland supplement for 5th edition. It's going to be called Majestic Fantasy Realms, not uh, Waterland, because of the curve, you know, the couple with uh, Judges Guild, but, uh, so... So a lot of the system to magic is I had to, I, just like I had to rethink the GURPS magic for uh, <clears throat> Swords and Wizardry, now I had to think of, rethink what I did with Swords and Wizardry and how to make it fit with 5th edition. And now I'm pretty excited about it. That's all I got. All right. Um, well, uh, I let's go ahead and... We're, we're a little bit over, so we'll go ahead and move into product uh, promotions, and we're going to go in reverse initiative. So it looks like uh, Brandon from Babies with Knives, you're up. Um, well, like I said, when I first came in, um, part of the Babies with Knives podcast group, uh, part of Bamf and part of the Frog God family, by all means, uh, come check out Babies with Knives on our Discord and our YouTube. We'll get some links into the show notes. Uh, we are currently dealing with Lex Occultum by Riot Minds, that is a uh, game that's taking place in Europe in the 18th century so the 1700s which i keep getting mixed up on um and it's you know you get a musket and you're investigating secret societies and you know cthulhuian type terrors and so it's a, a bit different than i think most things that i've seen out there because i don't know of a whole lot of games that are really trying to take place in that time period we're also riot minds has been nice enough to give us some prize bundles and so we're giving those uh, some of those away on our Discord server. So definitely check us out there if you're interested and check out the videos to find out more. Okay. Um, yeah, if you have any links, feel free to post them in the chat. Um, and I think y'all uh, brought somebody else in with, with you tonight. Uh, we have a new guest, Phil. Uh, yeah, hey, thanks. Um, thanks for tossing me into the mix. This has been really a, a fun group of conversations, so um, I'm I'm really glad to have been a part of it. Um, I I've I've been a freelance illustrator for 
third-party RPGs and private commissions for the past 25 years, but only recently got serious about uh, actually writing content for RPG stuff for the past year or so. And I did some freelancing uh, writing for adventure stuff with uh, uh, Inkwell Ideas for a little while. And then um, when uh, the DMs Guild started bouncing, and um ravnica got released that's when i committed to starting to building contents and uh what i my my biggest my biggest products that i put on dm's guild uh 5e would be uh tap on tap burn five color mana spell point variant rules uh which is a uh a replacement modular variant system to take out fifth edition spell casting and replace it with a uh, a color mana spell point system that has you casting spells by burning mana uh, concentrating on spells by tapping that mana down and while the mana is tapped uh, the spell maintains and um it's a it's a pretty good kit that's uh very modular so you can add pieces in and leave other pieces out but um i'll drop a link in into the notes for that but um you can just google tap untap burn and you'll find me but uh, i started off as an artist so um i wanted to start making books where i could feel like the art and, and the material was all part of the same component and that's that's what i've started doing so i'm, uh, I'm really proud of that there's a there's a 30 percent off bundle i just uh posted a link to that so three books in it so far, and I've got another three or four that are coming along the way as well that basically convert different classes into a, a five-color mana paradigm. Uh, this this initial set is um, got all the core mechanics and how it works, but there's deep dives you can take each class or, or different aspects of magic that I'm, I'm spilling into. <laughs> That's super cool, man. Were, it's fun. Uh, do you have any uh, any demos of that online, or is it? Uh, I just finished doing a, a character build with uh, with uh, Brandon and and uh, Lala, and uh, we're going to be doing a, a six level hex crawl campaign on June seventh. That'll be the first recording of it. Um, just a couple of reviews that have been posted, and there's a number of different MTG color theory channels that are chewing on it, and I think they're going to be posting out some reviews as well. But as far as like actual game content, um, Babies with Knives is going to be the first that has access to it, and that'll that'll probably be dropped. I guess probably next week or so. So that's really exciting. The- yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of fun. Uh, well, Glenn, it sounds like you're up now. Okay. Um, I don't have anything to sell except for myself right now. Uh, I'm How much just... do you charge? <laughs> That's a little no, weird. Uh, <laughs> actually, somebody asked. Somebody, uh, I bet uh, 10 gold pieces. Yeah, somebody got snippy with me uh, I guess last week and wanted to know exactly how much I've written, and they didn't realize that I mainly write for magazines and other stuff, so I've got like a thousand published articles. Uh, uh, but Yeah, um, but I've been working on the Mastara Player's Handbook, and I've got a... Uh, I, can, I can show you the work in progress of the cover. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, but I also do, as I've explained, kind of shown in this conversation i have like a large knowledge of rpgs 
and uh, I do reviews on them as well as the settings. Uh, this is my channel coming up. And uh, like I said, I do uh, the Mastara setting. I'm covering Cyberpunk 2020, and I do the Mad Musings, which is whatever RPG I can get my hands on, as I've just gotten a copy of the Aliens RPG, Leading Edge Games, which is absolutely terrible. Um, that one's going to be fun. I guess that's me then. Um, well, as Brandon already started talking about Babies with Knives, and he talked about our feature for the month. But in addition to that, Babies with Knives does a lot of different systems. We're going to be filming a, an episode on Troubleshooters, a current Kickstarter. Uh, we're going to be shooting a one shot as well as an interview with the developer tomorrow and Sunday. And we're going to be doing Scum and Villainy this Sunday. We're going to be doing Iron... We have two segments that we're keeping kind of under wraps right now. Um, one is going to be called Monday Night Madness, where we are grabbing... Uh, we have a group of people that we've gathered that are willing to play systems they've never tried before. And this includes sometimes the GM. And so the best, the most information we have at the table is having sat down and read it. So the first uh, game that's going to be showing on it is going to be Apocalypse Prevention Incorporated Second Edition, which is similar to the AMP system. And once again, it's by Eloy uh, Lasanta of Third Eye Games. And I was the GM for that. Nobody at the table had any information other than reading it. It was a lot of fun. We've done our, our arc of three episodes where we sit down, we learn the game, we're playing it. We're going to be moving on to a different system next. And so that's going to be a segment that's coming in the next few weeks. We're going to start releasing that slowly as we pack up a couple episodes to have a good uh, rhythm. We also have... Um, we also have some play testing going on on our Discord server with um, Matt Frisbee, who is creating a system called uh, Metaverse, and that's a superhero game. We've been uh, play testing with him. We're going to be doing the Lexa Coltum game. We have a an actual play with Phil coming up for his five color mana, and yeah, so. Basically, we have a lot of systems always coming up. Just come out and come over to our Discord, check it out, come over, come on to our um, YouTube channel and watch us. And if you have more systems you want to come and uh, promote and teach and learn, always come feel free to reach out to Brandon or myself. We are strong believers in Rising Tide. We we want to help developers. We want to engage and make things accessible for players. That is our major goal. So as you saw, we were hanging out with Phil earlier today. We're like, hey, we're going to be on coast to coast. Do you, you know, do you want to come and see what might happen? And I'm so glad he got to come and hang out with us and he got to plug his product. Wow, that Mastar cover is looking wicked. So that's what I've got to say. And yeah, it's, I think that the system coverage that I did was a little overload, but there's a lot that we do. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the front and back cover. It's not done yet, but uh, Rubus, uh, we had about a three hour conversation on the exact cover. And that was something I always remembered was always listen to your artist. Because the first idea was too crowded. The second idea was too obscure. So we just grabbed a scene from the module Temple of Death. And uh, he said he wanted... I talked to him about the Malfera, and I told him that they're usually drawn badly, and he wanted to change that. The Malfera are the elephant lobster monsters that are cutting a temple in half. Digging it. 
Very nice. Yeah, really good. Well, um, yeah. I, th I think we do have one more person. That would uh, be me. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't have anything new this time. I'm still working on the Wild North in the middle of drawing up the cities. Uh, I did uh, new since the last time I was here. I did talk to Bob Bledsoe Jr. and we settled on what they owe me for the uh, the maps I drew because uh, I only got paid for half of them. And so, you know, the agreement that I don't owe them royalties is still in effect. I'm not going to be coming out with any new Waterland project because of uh, Mr. Bledsaw's post, which he still doesn't get why they were wrong. And... Uh, so at the current rate of my sales, it will be probably up until the end of the year. So the link to buy them, if you want uh, some decent maps, some guidebooks, and uh, of course my original Black Marsh, a print copy of my original uh, Black Marsh. It's, it's, it's still all available on DriveThru. And, and all the revenue goes to me. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to go ahead and open up, unmute everybody that's in the audience tonight. Uh, it looks like we have a few folks on and uh, free people up to ask questions of the panel. And, uh, you know, if you're shy or you don't want to actually talk in, um, in chat, you can uh, type them in the uh, Discord window below. <coughs> Um, otherwise, we'll just, you know, jibber-jabber on for a little bit while about whatever strikes our fancy. No questions? Wow, no questions. Okay. No questions. Come on now. Well, uh, so I have a question. Uh, so this is the, I guess, you were talking about the cover art earlier, Glenn. So this is the... Uh, not the, or the unfinished cover that and Rubis is working on this right he's uh, he did all the chapter art plus a lot of these scenes he, he did all the action scenes for the book I uh, had another artist work on the individual characters so you're uh, I, I thought you had more than two artists originally are you basically just with several. you now um, yeah. But Rubus and Misha did the lion's share of the work. Uh, Leo Madrano drew the immortals because his, he draws very alienish kind of characters. Where they're human, but they look slightly off. I'll find an example of it. And then Sierra Grillo did um, the clerics because again, I wanted them to look slightly different. And then Adrian Berkland uh, did the. Um, did the art for the, the nations. And you said you're getting, uh, you're actually getting really close to being done with that. It, the last time I Soon saw it, done it with like, that. yeah, it looked like, um, I've got the, uh, I got in touch with, I have a friend who's a friend of uh, Ray Winninger, and he's trying to uh, get me in contact with him directly to open up Mistara. I did get told 
that if this happened or if I do actually get to talk to him to have all of my I's dotted and my T's crossed because he's all business. And I just hope he hasn't seen my review of Underground. <laughs> so who's going to be carrying Miss Dara? What's that? How's how's Miss Dara being carried? Because that, that was a that was a D and D setting, right? It was an IP. Yes, how it is. They were, they were we're trying to get it opened up on the uh, the DMs Guild. All right. Uh, I started writing this years ago when they said, "Yeah, we're going to open up all the settings to the DMs Guild." And by the time I realized that that was probably a dirty, dirty lie, I was already well invested into it, so I just kept going. Plus, dealing with a divorce and Hurricane Harvey and some other stuff, I write better under stress. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, so is it not? It's full color, 224 pages. Um, all the art is custom because when I first started writing this, I got a letter from somebody from Wizards that was I was kind of associated with uh, from another project, and uh, they told me exactly is like we don't mind you doing this, but you have to you have to obey these rules because back when the uh, DM's Guild was coming out, we there were some questions about what was allowed and what wasn't. Gotcha. So this is going to be on the DMs Guild eventually, or are they letting it be yeah. like? Uh... Hmm? I'm sorry. What was that? I was asking: Is uh, did they did they loosen that for you so it would be on DMs Guild, or is no? It be I've got to I've got as... to talk to them about it. That's why I was trying to get in touch with them and get the books, get the book ready. Everything that has been allowed or has been opened on Wizards of the Coast is either a Magic the Gathering product or was was opened up by influencers and that's how you have to get, that's how you have to do it nowadays. If you want to, uh, if, if you want to get it opened up or get the book published, you've got to show them that this makes them money and makes them look good. Oh, interesting. And I, I found out like earlier this week that the, the number one best selling computer game for Dungeons and Dragons was Chronicles of the Star. Hmm. Yeah, it wasn't an RPG. It was a beat em up, but it was a D&D beat em up in that setting. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, made Capcom a whole bunch of money. I mean, and it was like, it sold, I, I, I forgot what it was, but it was like 17 million copies. I played it. Well, I can't show them products, but I can show them ma maps, and Anna Myers got me beat if they could sell maps for Greyhawk on. Uh... Or if we can open up Greyhawk so she and I can sell maps. Yeah, I mean, that's. I thought they were going to open up Greyhawk after Ghost of Saltmarsh, but no. They opened up Ravenloft after Curse of Strahd. Yeah, we were, every, a lot of Greyhawk people were, were disappointed. Yeah, so I've got a large, you know, I've, I've got my sales pitch and my, or like the elevator pitch to get Mastara open. And the big thing is, is it's, it's it's already well known, and people don't realize they know it already, especially for the the video game players. Just realize though that anything that you sell on the DM's Guild, uh, I mean, of course it's got to remain on DM's Guild, but unless you get permission from Wizards of Coast, you can't even make derivative contact even if you strip out the Mustara stuff. Yeah, oh, believe me, I. Um, I can I can reword everything. I mean, and I can you know. Well, like, no, hey, you, you should read. 
Well, you should read the uh, license agreement before you even think about doing that, because they they are pretty. They have a paragraph on what they call derivative works. Right. Well, all I do is change the maps, change all the names, and you know, you, you Mistar is based on real world uh, settings, just like a lot of other groups. So it, it wouldn't be that difficult to just shave off the serial numbers. Just have to re redo the map. Okay. Well, it's. It's, Thanks for the caution. It, it, I, all I could say is I would consult an IP attorney, and I, I, I did, and it's not good. Yeah, um, but no, I've, I've got you know I can always repurpose the art. You know, Roman legion, uh, Roman legionnaires, a Roman legionnaire. I mean, your book sounds like it's it's just not going to work. It's it's only going to work on if you know if it's published on DM Guild with a TSR with with his blessing. But they, if you like, say, publish an adventure, and later on you want to expand that, but decide just to rewrite the setting that the adventure in, even that you'd be blocked from that by by the license that you agreed to on DM. Well, it's their IP, so I have to play by their rules. I mean, if we're going to do Mastara, Mastara will make me more money than a third-party you know, a, a game because it it's built into the most popular RPG. Okay. I've got to, you know, so I've got to get this on the DMs Guild. I've been, you know, working my way into it. Uh, I had a plan, and I was going to talk to some people, but uh, the problem was the can. COVID hit and the conventions just uh, washed away. So I've got to come up with, I think, Plan G now. Well, but I was told, I was told uh, to get, you know, really got to get famous people. That's what they, that's what, that's how they determine things is what famous people talk about I, your product. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I've got, I, I've got some hope for you with this one because you put a lot of effort into it uh, and it really does. I mean, what I saw, it, it really does look like, a, in my opinion, um, a worthwhile book, you know, something that, um, what were the, I mean, I know some of this stuff was rolled up into, there was like a core rule set that they created later on. Um, but I think aside from that, there's not really, to my knowledge, there's not a good, um, I guess sort of conglomeration of all of all of the uh, Mastara stuff. I think they were all in those gazetteers and various modules. Yeah, I, yeah if you come out with this book, you'll be the first on the scene, and that will that will be a big help for you. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and it's ready. It seems like what you know from what I can tell. Right. I, I mean, I, I talked that this at length with a lot of people that in the industry they have to get the book completely finished you can't just you can't show them an incomplete product that was rule number one. Second, you've got to get it in the hands of people that you know that can talk about it to large audiences to generate the the interest and i've got several people waiting for it and with a, with the uh the youtube influencers with the hundreds of thousands of people subscribed to their channel I've actually had one guy talk about it, and uh, he's waiting for it. Um, on the, though he doesn't like the fact that Mastara has got a lot of anthro stuff, but I can't change that. So that's the setting. Hmm. That's the setting, though. Yeah, it is. You know, I was like, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Drow, but if you want to play Forgotten Realms, play Drow. Um, 
so you get you get it known and then you bring it to the attention and if i can if i can backdoor it by talking to the people directly which was the original plan but uh that's been completely you know thrown off the rails because right now i mean they, they've got the the critical role they just got theirs brought back up uh what's that the goofy one they, they came out with a while back that didn't sell at all rick and morty no, no I think they're talking about their wendy's acquisitions game. incorporated that's the, the one game <laughs> the, <Wendy's> <laughs> <laughs> so the acquisitions incorporated again somebody that that makes them look good like when i was doing um actually i had a uh a website that i just finally killed because it was it was i was it was bleeding me dry that was teaching um uh logical fallacies through the use of uh football and i got a word from the nfls as long as you keep making us look good and don't make a dime off of this we won't sue you into oblivion and eventually you know so as long as you make them look good they, they'll play ball with you though uh, yeah that the sounds like TS or wizards of the coast does not terrify me as much as the nfl's lawyers did good luck man i hope that really pans out for you yeah. i mean it's yeah. looking so far so it's yeah, good luck if anybody knows any, if anybody knows a reviewer that wants to look at this and is actually got an audience and will actually do a review, uh, I, I, I can send them a review copy. But like I said, before the uh, the virus hit, I, I worked at the mag my magazine as a, uh, a reviewer for a lot of stuff, and that's always bugged me is when they uh, when I send somebody a copy and I, I don't get anything in return, they just got a free copy off of me. When I get a, when I get theater tickets, I have to write. You know, I've got two days to give them a review. I was like, I will send out review copies, but I, I need reviews back. Huh. Well, I, I'm not much of a reviewer, but I did write a, a little blurb about it. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, like I said, it's from what I've seen it seems like a definite uh worthwhile addition um my biggest critique of it i mean if anybody's asking was i felt like initially some of the artwork um was a little bit disjointed you know um it felt like some of it didn't match up and when we'd already talked glenn you were saying you were already all over that and yeah, you You've limited it. Now you've got uh, Rubus doing a lot more work. And yeah, that's some of the artwork. I think all of the stuff people have seen in here tonight is pretty outstanding. So, yeah, that was Rubus. And that was actually what you what you said uh, when I went to the North Texas uh, RPG Con. And um, I brought the book that I printed up as a test copy. And uh, that's what people told me was the, the art needed to be very similar in style, or at least by chapter by chapter. And uh, so I, I threw out the original cover. I threw out the original cover and paid a lot of money to get the art to replace it. Because the problem was I had original art all done by the same guy, but he got plagiarizing towards the end because he was rushing the uh, the piece. And then people started pointing out that that axe, the axe that he put in that was was a Photoshop straight out of uh, Skyrim. And then uh, the the portrait of Alina was actually uh, Chandra Levy, or not Chandra, she's the dead girl. Uh, the one of the planeswalkers from Magic, and he just he just photoshopped her for a book for Wizards of the Coast. Plagiarized. That's Ooh, crazy man. plagiarism. Yeah, especially when you're plagiarizing something from the person you're trying to write the book for. 
I, I actually dealt with um, uh, an author a while back who, uh, well, it was an artist who was also the author of their own book. They did something similar to two pieces. And when they pitched it to uh, uh, my pitched it to me and a friend of ours about coming on, I said, I recognize that piece from this thing. And he's like, oh yeah, I just grabbed it and Photoshopped it. I said, that's from a freaking video game. And you cannot take that and just Photoshop and change colors and expect the rights to be changed. Blizzard is going to have your ass. And they said, oh really? I said, yep, I will not have you on BWK. Sorry. And he was really surprised. I'm like, how do people not understand the way that these rights work? Yeah, that's uh, this. This was the art that I was given, and uh, that's when everybody pointed out that that was uh, that was Chandra from Magic: The Gathering. Considering the character that he was supposed to be drawing was a blonde, anyways. Hmm. That's crazy. I mean, I do some um, Photoshop work, and I do it for various things, but I'm always very awake and aware about that being, you know, not my stuff. I always say I can photo manipulate with the permission with stock art and with the permission of so-and-so. And it's one thing if you're taking it out of stock art, because, you know, make sure that the rights are set up in a certain way and such. But uh, if you're taking it out of video games like Skyrim and uh, World of <laughs> Warcraft and, you know, Witcher and stuff like that, um, uh, somebody did something like that with Siri and posted it and said, oh, you know, I can do people's character portraits. And uh, apparently it was just recolored Siri. And then they got removed from the group for that. You know, stuff like that. You you got to be aware of what you're doing and uh, who you're disrespecting because people here in this in this room, in this channel, we're all friends. We're, we're all within the industry. We know a lot of artists and they work their butts off. And artists should get credit where they're due. Because they, and they don't, they, yeah. they don't get enough of that credit. Plagiarizing art. Okay. I, I work, you know, I, the, the magazine I work for covers art, theater, music, and you plagiarize it. That's a black, that's the blacklist right then. You never work again. Oh yeah. Agreed. It's the way it should be. Yeah. So this is what, uh, that's what I, I, ditched the original art and and hired Rubus and this is what he gave me and he also Rubus has a habit of saying your idea sucks mine is better <laughs> I but, like to uh, collaborate with the artist though um, yeah oh no he, he'll he'll talk back with you back and forth with you and he'll come up with ideas um and but I mean I, I described this scene. He's like, okay, th your idea sucks. Give me another one. So I described what about Odin looking in on one of the petitioners for immortality in action. And uh, the idea was and he didn't really capture it, but the idea was the very beginning of Lord of the Rings where uh, Sauron is using his uh, uh, he's using his club to play golf with the armies of the Freemen. And we've tried to get that one where the werebear's about to go yard with that goblin right there. <laughs> Good times. Yeah. Like my sentient idea for the gladiator chapter, which was going to be the gladiators holding up their weapons with the we who are about to die salute you. And this is what he sent me back.
he said that mine was boring. That's a story is listen to your artist. Yeah, I like that piece. Ooh. Yeah, there's a lot going on in that image. Um, everyone's a lot of fun. And I like how he tied it in with the uh, helmets. Yeah, that's a pretty cool image. That's awesome. Yeah, Interesting uh, mist effect that he has on some of the background, uh, you know, the, the dust effect that he's doing. I think that's uh, an interesting cloud effect that he's using. Desaturation. I think, that, um, I think you might want to ask him to add just a little bit of graininess on some of that dust just to really make that dust pop a little bit. But it's really an, an impressive piece. But right now it's looking a little more cl yellow cloud and less uh, that dust. But it's gorgeous. Well, it's a banner. Um, the you know, it's 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 small enough that it wasn't a uh, it wasn't really much of a factor. Oh, the audience he he hid Easter eggs in a lot of this stuff. I didn't realize that one of the uh, two of, uh, in the audience there's a woman copping a feel on another woman. Yeah, I'm not sure what the uh, wizard's stance on that'll be. I expect they probably you have to squint to see it. Yeah, he did do is he recycled a lot of the like the helmets in the uh, the the heroes in time or that this was the uh, places and times. Uh, is uh, he recycled the helmets from that art into this one in the background? Oh, the green guy, that's the uh, the she, one of the races. They are best described as David Bowie without the fashion sense. So I'm going to have to wrap it up here in a couple of minutes. No Because um, I okay. think we've gone a little bit over. Um, and we haven't fielded, I don't think, any more questions. But this has been a... Uh, this has been a fun night. Um, it's it's always cool uh, when we get to meet new people and, and and just let the show go on and you guys just talk about all this stuff. I learned something every time y'all come on, um, and I had a lot of fun, and I really appreciate everybody uh, who came on tonight. Thanks for having me. Really Thanks so much fun. for thank having you. us. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. I have a lot of fun whenever I come on. Appreciate it. Yeah, it was it was a blast. Although you guys tend to bring out the more um, opinionated side of me that I try and hide a little bit sometimes because I'm like, sure. yeah. <laughs> oh, it's okay. We're on late, <laughs> so. And you're not moderating, um, so you can well, be a little looser on the stick. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I guess we'll say good night to Craig. So uh, and good night, until Craig. next time. Thanks, Craig, for botting it out.